The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to The Booklist Podcast, an extended collection of material first broadcast as a clear spot on Resonance 104.4 FM in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and in this episode, I'm looking at 10 years of Doctor Who spin-off novels since the TV show came back in 2005. Trying to unpack whether the last 10 years of Doctor Who spin-offs have been any different to the previous 40. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Jay Eels and Selina Locke, two writers and editors who have worked on such spin-off titles as Faction Paradox, about a Time Lord voodoo cult, Iris Wildtime, a balmy time lady who travels around in a TARDIS that looks like the number 22 bus from Putney, and Signor 105, which imagines what the Doctor would be like if he was reincarnated as a masked Mexican wrestler. However, before all that, I'm talking to acclaimed sci-fi novelist Alistair Reynolds about his third Doctor, as played on TV by John Pertwee, novel The Harvest of Time, which sees the Doctor fighting his old adversary the Master once more, in a variety of locations, from 1970s Earth to a ruined planet right at the end of time, taking in such concepts as the other 400 incarnations of the Master, a Gallifreyan prison ship containing an evil race of robot crabs that possess people they touch, and much more. To give you a flavour of the novel, here's an extract from the audiobook read by Geoffrey Beavers, an actor who would play the second incarnation of the Master on TV. Prologue. The worst machine in the universe was a marble grey box no larger than a coffin or shipping trunk. Its base was wider and longer than its lid, so that the sides had a slight cant to them. Three of the sides were blank, save for that marbling. The fourth, one of the two ends, had an angled console jutting out from it. The console's upper surface was set with a square matrix of white controls, each of which had been embossed with a precise black symbol in an alien alphabet. There were 169 controls, 169 different symbols, and the Red Queen's people understood about 75 of them. The rest had eluded their best scientists for centuries. The Red Queen regarded the machine as possessing a quality of intrinsic malevolence. If anything could be said to be evil, it was this device. Yet she could not afford to ignore its transformative power. Of all the potent technologies recovered from the Consolidator, the ghost ship that had fallen into orbit around her adopted world, this was by far the most important and seductive. Your Doctor Who novel, The Harvest of Time, came out a couple of years ago as part of BBC Books' new um, prestigious line of chunky Doctor Who books by established authors. So you're following in the footsteps of Michael Moorcock and Stephen Baxter. Did the BBC approach you to do it, or had you been dropping hints over the years that you wanted to write a Doctor Who novel? One of the things I'd always said to myself, I I would never drop any hints, (laughs) um, but I'd always wanted to be involved with Doctor Who on some level, but I always felt... Something Ian Banks said once was, uh, he, he was talking about how do you get to go on things like Mastermind and University Challenge, and, and people had said to him, oh, it's really 
really cool you got to do that how did you swing it and he always said you know the one thing you can't do for these things is lobby for it you just can't push for them you just have to wait for these opportunities to uh, land in your lap and I always felt the same way about Doctor Who I loved Doctor Who since I was a kid but I didn't want to sort of sort of um, go knocking on their door and obviously I didn't know that they were going to start doing these this lineup of books but uh, no my, my agent approached me out of the blue uh, in probably I think it was 2010 and just put out feelers would you be interested in doing something like that and of course I jumped on it because I, I, I was really keen to have some involvement with Doctor Who um, and the, the, the pitch was they're bringing back Doctor Who novels with writers who aren't really associated with the programme and they'd kind of like it if you picked an older Doctor not rather than the ones that was running at the time so I, I immediately said well can I have John Pertwee and as it was they had none, none of the other writers they'd approached at that point had gone for the third Doctor so that was simple and then I came up with a couple more sort of um, criteria was that I'd like to use Joe Grant and I also wanted to use the Master and there was no there were no particular problems with that it was just mm. off you go and then they said give us some ideas and then there was a process of about a year then of just bouncing ideas around mm. until they were happy with with an idea you know. there was no rush because they, 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 they were going to do Moorcox one and then Steve's one Jenny Colgan did one uh, there was you know they, they, it was quite clear mine wasn't going to come out until 2012 2013 mm. so you know there was no particular um, pressure to get get started on it well I wonder if you accidentally set a precedent because Moorcock and Colgan's novels are about the doctors who were on TV at the time while Stephen did a second doctor novel you did a third and the next past doctor one that's coming out is A.L. Kennedy doing a fourth doctor so maybe the thing actually we'll do them in order <laughs> oh, right I mean, I'm glad there's another one coming out because I wasn't sure what the um you know how whether they were going to continue with that yeah. line yeah no I mean I could have gone it was always a toss up between me between the third and the fourth mm. but I felt that the third one was the one that I I, I felt I, I had a handle on the voice and mannerisms of Pertwee mm. plus some of the associated characters I was more confident of that than than, than with Baker I mean I love Tom Baker mm. um, but I would have had to sit down and watch hours and hours of Tom Baker to try and just pick up on a few sort of because it's not enough just to say f- scarf and hat is it yeah, you've got yeah. you've got to really nail the um the, the mannerisms and the voice and i felt yeah i kind of felt i knew Persui, particularly as I'd, I'd really enjoyed catching up on the uh the episodes i vaguely remembered as a kid uh, when they came out on dvd but even then there were a few things i i didn't pick up on and the um the editor after he'd read the book he said well you know there's a couple of mannerisms you can use and if you notice he always scratches the back of his neck and, which is true, and I hadn't really picked up on that. So again, you just you just write that into a scene, and it just helps position the character a little bit more clearly for the reader. The the story that you've told um, is quite different to the kind of stories that John Pertwee did on TV. I mean, some of his run was kind of hard sci-fi, as it were, talking about parallel worlds and things like Inferno. But generally, it was the kind of Avengers-style action that you got in the unit years. Or if he did take Joe off in the TARDIS, it would be a kind of fantasy adventure in Atlantis. The fact that you've taken him right to the end of time and uh, there's all sorts of uh, time paradoxes and things involving 400 different incarnations of the master and so on. It seems far more epic a story than poetry was ever allowed on screen. Was that one of the things that you wanted to bring to it? Well, I wasn't sure what I wanted to bring to it, other than I, I, I kind of had a feeling I wasn't going to get another chance to do a Doctor Who novel, and I wasn't going to get another chance to do a Pertwee novel. So the problem is, you just have too many possibilities. I certainly wanted to get lots of unit action into it. So on one level, I thought, let's just do, an, let's just do the entire story set on Earth, around 
you know, the country, the English countryside, like a typical unit story. And there were certain key scenes I wanted to have. Like, I, I, all I remembered as a kid was Land Rovers crashing through checkpoints. <laughs> and I, or, you know, and so I wanted that. I wanted some sort of checkpoints and things. Mm. So I thought, well, if I could get a nuclear power station into it, that'd be a good reason to have sort of barriers and mm. security guards and vehicles crashing around. But at the same time, I thought, well, on the other hand, it's my only chance to write a Doctor Who novel. Mm. And I also like the time travel aspects of it. So I felt like I also wanted to do something set in a, in a much more cosmic um, location. So it was really a question of deciding between those two possibilities. And in the end, I just decided to sort of just merge them in a way. Mm. But you're right, it is probably, it's not, it, it goes to places that a Pertwee episode wouldn't have. But I don't think I was really that, as a kid, I wasn't that conscious of that. I mean, I, I would just accept that the Doctor would go in the TARDIS and he'd go off to different planets, somewhere off in space and time and have an adventure, whether it was um, Peladon mm. or Metabellis Three or something like that. I mean, I, I, it, it never crossed my mind that there was... You know, there was maybe more of a fantasy trope. I mean, by the time you get to sort of Baker, you've got, I suppose, more of um, there's a gloss of science. The science doesn't really stand up to any kind of scrutiny. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you that as someone who studied a science yeah. at degree level, did that ever, when you were watching the show, make you go, "Oh no, they've got that one wrong"? <laughs> no, I mean not. I mean, I think my love of Doctor Who just undercuts all that. I just don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't let it bother me on any level that the science is a little bit crackers. But I think the other thing was that the writers of Doctor Who were actually quite good, uh, in a way, doing a sort of um, sleight of hand. And, uh, they didn't. They, they were good with jargon, and they were good with conjuring up something that sounded plausible. But I mean, like you know, when when Baker, when he had that issue with the TARDIS's chameleon circuit, it was, and he was trying to get the um, the block transfer calculations, mm. so he had to go to um, that planet. But it sounded good, didn't it? Block transfer calculations, because those those are the sort of computational things you have to do to, to make the chameleon process work. I thought, well, it doesn't mean anything, but it sounds good. Yeah, yeah. And other things in Doctor Who universe sound like e, the, the, you know, e-space or, um, you know, or um, entropy pumps, whatever it is. And um, yeah, I always thought, I just thought it, it, Doctor Who had a good veneer. skein, a yeah, veneer, yeah. a veneer <laughs> of science that didn't really stand up to scrutiny, but that was all, it, it didn't matter. There was seldom any, because they were, they hedged around the science, they didn't, they didn't actually come up with anything really stupid either. I think that's what helps Doctor Who. Mm. Yeah. Well, and like Space 1999, where, <laughs> where the science is kind of bogus, but also in your face, mm. you know, in a way that Doctor Who didn't do. They, they were, the writers were generally cannier, I think, mm. about, about how to handle science. Or conversely, would you say watching Doctor Who as a kid was the kind of thing that pushed you in the direction of studying science, or would that be more science fiction literature? Uh, I don't know, really. Uh, there were... There were two scientific role models on television when I was a kid, and I'm, we're talking early 70s here. One was Spock, and then one was Doctor Who. Um, you can say Patrick Moore. <laughs> no, I mean, I, well, I didn't become aware of Patrick Moore as a figure until much later in life, you know, in the 80s, by, by which point I was already I was going down that road, road yeah. anyway. So I was, I was attracted to scientist figures on television, but I, was, I also liked the Avengers and... Mm. Um, you know the Tomorrow People and bits of various bits of things like Quatermass that I vaguely remember. Mm. So I, I was I was pulled in being pulled in that direction, and I, it's very hard to say what you know separate that one one influence that, that that made a difference. I mean, everyone loved Doctor Who when I was a kid. It was it was just all pervasive. Um, as, as I've mentioned, uh, there was a lad I used to know who had Dalek wallpaper, <laughs> and I used to do genuinely not want to go around his house because the idea that he had Daleks on his bedroom wall was just perverse. You know, why would you do that? Why would you have Daleks on you? Because you know, they're evil. 
and they might come out of the wallpaper at night or something like that. So, you know, it, it, Doctor Who was universal, and there were, even, even in the 70s, you've got to remember that uh, there was an awful lot of Doctor Who merchandising around. There were, there were, there were Doctor Who uh, chocolate bars, you know, I said, really love those. So, yeah, it was just in your face all the time, and you had, you, I, don't, I don't think you had a particular choice about being a Doctor Who fan or not. It was just, it was just there. Yeah. One of the nice things about writing a John Pertwee novel in the modern day is it means you can do things like drop in a reference to the Jadoon, you know, for modern fans. And also, inadvertently, you predicted the idea of there being a female master. I'd read Moorcock's one, and Moorcock was... He, he used some of the more recent monsters. So I thought, well, it'd be quite nice to um, just salt a few more recent references into the text. There were, I made some mistakes. I had some references in the dialogue to things that... Because the one thing I wasn't particularly good at was remembering who was Benton and who was Yates. Because that was never important to me when I was a kid. It was just they were just the unit guys. And my editor, Justin Richards, he was sort of the, the, the sort of line editor. He was the guy who was keeping a really close watch on the book. You know, he, he was really canny. And he'd say things like, well, you've, you've had Yates mention Omega that he wouldn't have he wouldn't know about Omega at this point or something ah, like that okay. you know he, he had yeah. a real clear sense of where we had to be in terms of the chronology and I didn't I mean to me Doctor Who of that era is just random episodes like yeah. um, obviously I, I know which ones have got Joe in and I, I know which ones, ones have got Sarah Jane in well, particularly if you buy them on DVD, you're not yeah. going to watch them in the order they're broadcast. I, I, I never watched them in order, and I certainly didn't read the Target books in order either, so it's all a bit jumbled up in my head. But yeah, he kept, a, he kept um, an eye on that. And as, as for the master, yeah, I, I, I think it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. I'm not going to claim any great prescience for that. I think if you start from the standpoint of the Delgado master and say, what would a female version of the master look like, you sort of end up with Missy, whether you... Whether you like it or not so that was just that there was a little bit of resistance to the idea of me mentioning that there was a female master though but um we got it sort of through in the end yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think it because i mean i always think that yeah, there should be a female doctor who at some point mm. because of the um i mean the doctor is an alien so you can really anything goes yeah um but they were having that big debate about who should be the next doctor at the time and but then neil gaiman had thrown in something in his episode that seemed to open the door to the possibility of there being a female you know time lord changing gender mm. so i thought yeah why not yeah um and i've got the master being you know there's references to him being a little boy and i think the master would just be would assume any form mm. that suited the master's agenda at any point in time wouldn't it yeah and the other thing about Doctor Who coming back 10 years ago and revitalizing the franchise and making it, inverted commas, mainstream, is I guess it opened up the possibility of this book range taking place. Because in a parallel world where Doctor Who didn't come back, I suppose what we might have now is a range of paperbacks based on the cartoon adventures of Richard E. Grant as the, uh, the Doctor on the internet, and they would only be bought by a niche market. But I suppose maybe in that parallel world, there might have been the opportunity for you to do a pulpier paperback version. Well, I think the way I understand it, when BBC finally decided that they were going to bring back Doctor Who, and obviously there was a couple of years of planning before it actually happened, they, they were quite keen to regain firm control of the brand, which is why a lot of the... Um, the spin-off properties were sort of suppressed, if you like, for a period. Um, and then once, the, once Doctor Who was up and running, probably, I say, they, co- they contacted me in 2010, so after it had been going for a few years, mm. I think they felt sufficiently relaxed that they could begin to open up the universe again to, to sort of, um, what do you want to, you know, spin-off stories, if you like. Mm. But they, want, they were quite particular about certain things, and they said, 
when I, when I was discussing possible ideas with them, and I said I want to have the master, and they said, "Well, you can have the master, but at the moment the, B- the BBC are quite keen to downplay the mythos." That was the way that it was stated, by which they meant they they wanted to get away from the whole backstory of Gallifrey and the Time Lords. I think they maybe overused it a little bit in the series, and they felt they yeah. needed to just get away from that for a bit. So they said, "Please, can you sort of you know, not mention Gallifrey and?" It's going to be really hard to tell a story about the Master and the Doctor without mentioning yeah. Gallifrey. Well, and you come up with this idea of Gallifrey and prison ships, like you know, that are stranded in time. You know? Yeah. So I really, all that happened was I just thought, well, I'll just write the story as, as I see it should be, and then we can fight over the references later. But as it happened, there was never any censorship. That never came up. So it is pretty much as it, as it was written. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Cheers. Alistair Reynolds' book, The Harvest of Time, is available now from all good bookshops and also on audio CD read by Jeffrey Beavers. You can find more information about Alistair Reynolds' work by going to his website, alistairreynolds.com. That's A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S dot com. Next, here's my interview with Jay Eels and Selena Locke about their work on such Time Lords spin-offs as Faction Paradox, Iris Wild Time, and Signor 105. The interview was recorded in the busy cafe in Kendall Clock Tower in the Lake District, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. You guys are kind of known for working in comics, for publishing, editing, contributing to various comic book anthologies from fact to fiction. Had you been wanting to move into sort of like the Doctor Who world uh, for a while? Because I guess outside of the mainstream books published by the likes of Virgin and the BBC, there always has been a kind of healthy Doctor Who fanzine scene out there. We kind of started the other way around, really. Um, Back in late 90s, early 2000s, Factor Fiction's first publication was a Doctor Who charity book. Um, Because I was a big comics fan, um, knew a lot of people who worked for 2000 AD, um, knew a lot of people on the Doctor Who fan scene who'd written fan fiction. Um, I wrote some myself. Um, and then uh, a friend called Mark Fippen created uh, uh, a charity anthology with Doctor Who stories written by fans mainly, but some of the people who'd gone from being fans into professionals, so the Paul Cornells of the world and Lance Parkin, people like that, uh, Kate Orman, um, would all write extra stories. Um, and, and they did them for charity. Um, and so Perfect Timing came out of that. Um, and then Selena and I got together as a couple. Um, our first thing was to, to help out on proofreading the first Perfect Timing, which involved rather too much red wine, so I suspect not that much proofreading actually got done. Um, and then we kind of moved on from that. So the very first fact of fiction publication was Walking in Eternity, which is, um, it was me wanting all of these great fan writers and, and, and pro writers again, any, any that I could get involved to write um, their own version of Doctor Who and think, you know, let's just throw continuity out the window. If you want a story where um, the fourth Doctor doesn't regenerate um, and then meets up with all these other alternative versions of the Doctor, so a fifth Doctor that was um, played by um, Angela Lansbury <laughs> instead of Peter Davison. Um, this is that, that's Mike Collins, the, the comics um, artist and writer who well, happened to be a mate. He uh, drew us a lovely uh, limited edition um, print of all of these different alternatives ones. There was a uh, Michael Horden 
version of the Doctor who dressed as Paddington Bear. Um, and, and when he said, suggested, well, I want this, this um, Angela Lansbury Doctor, and then, well, that's a bit out of left field. He said, well, that's because you're thinking Murder, She Wrote, and I'm thinking Bedknobs and Roomsticks. And then it all kind of fell into place. So we did um, Walking in Eternity, had lots of 2008 artists doing the artwork. Um, when Fraser Irving was just breaking in, he did us a really good um, Cyberman um, illustration. Um, Brian Talbot's helped us out a lot. Dave Gibbons has done things. There's quite a few names. Um, so we just, we just had fun and games doing that. And then after we'd done one of these every year for about three years, we just decided let's not do that anymore. And, uh, and that was on the way back from Bristol. 2001. And I said, why don't I do a comic? And that's how the Gailey comic was born. Uh, so that kind of came after the, the Doctor Who um, anthologies that we'd been involved in. Jay and I actually met through Doctor Who fandom, so we are kind of rooted in that fandom um, before we became much bigger in comics fandom. Um, and I, uh, prior to meeting Jay, was involved in the time-based Doctor Who fan videos. Um, so my contribution to Walking in Eternity was uh, a prose story co-written with Catherine Sullivan, which was featuring the time-based Doctor. <laughs> and I managed to get Roger Langridge to do a four-page comic strip featuring that Doctor as well, which um, I'm sure baffled him at the time because he wasn't a huge Doctor Who fan, even though he'd done illustrations and comic strips and lettering for the Doctor Who magazine for a few years. He wasn't totally up with all of the little details of things. We just said, well, here are photos of this particular fan Doctor. Yeah. Just, just work with those, and he's a great sport, so... Mm. Uh, because it seems that Doctor Who has always been a franchise that's been very welcoming uh, to all of these various spin-offs, however unofficial. I mean, you know, you spoke about Log Roger Landridge drawing this uh, Doctor from fan videos. In the official uh, Doctor Who magazine strip, they had the Doctor fake regenerate into Nick Briggs for a while, who had only appeared in audio cassettes, you know, that were given out at conventions. I mean, why do you think... I mean, obviously you can't speak for the BBC, but... Why do you think there always has been this tacit you know, allowance of these kind of fan versions of Doctor Who? Is it because, as we can now see, you can quite easily cross the divide from being a fan into being a professional who's worked on the show itself? Um, I'd say, I mean, I think the BBC has been a little lackadaisical on yeah. clamping down on, on, on fans doing this sort of thing. So it was always there in the background. And then when obviously it had the, the, the hiatus where it wasn't on the air, there wasn't really any need to protect the copyright mm. as much. So um, fans were just keeping the flame going, really. Mm. Um, and then obviously Virgin Books had, been, uh, had bought Target, who had been doing all the novelisations, and they got to the end of all of those novelisations and there wasn't, wasn't anything else. So then they decided, well, let's, let's do brand new stories. Um, didn't want to regenerate him, so they stuck with Sylvester McCoy and just really developed that character. And that's where a lot of these fan writers from the internet and from fanzines and things came into their own because they were thinking, this is it. <laughs> and those were their opportunities, and, and a lot of them made the most of it. I mean, Russell T. Davis had, had did a, a Doctor Who novel mm. before he did the TV series. Stephen Moffat had been heavily involved in that scene. Mm. Yeah. You spoke about um, writers taking established Doctor Who continuity and then playing with it, for example, the third Doctor not regenerating. But actually... Um, the series that you're involved with now, Faction Paradox, 
when the creator of that, Lawrence Miles, was writing official books, he was doing similar things, uh, like having the third Doctor regenerate at a different point. So it, it, it does seem again that the, the grey area between what's official and what's unofficial is something that, that all of various people can play with. Well, they had this uh, this thing with the the BBC novels that they, if you created a novel for them, then you shared ownership with the BBC. So if you created any new characters, then the BBC could use those characters in further novels by other people. And I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if they actually had to had to ask permission. I don't think they did, but you could still use them yourself outside. You couldn't use any of the Doctor Who elements, but Lawrence was very good at coming up with interesting twists. Mm. On, on what Doctor Who lore was all about and just by squinting at it from a different angle you could get a completely different look on it and he, he did a lot of that so the Faction Paradox characters that he created for the Doctor Who novels that he wrote he could then spin them out but then instead of saying that oh they're Time Lords you have to say oh they're from the Great Houses mm. and you kind of fudge <laughs> the details file the, file the serial numbers up. Um, so Obverse is, I think, the th- third publishing company that's had the rights to do Faction Paradox novels and short story collections. When you got involved in co-editing some of their Faction Paradox books, what was your remit? I mean, had they already decided to do them, or did you, as one of the contributors to Obverse publications, say, oh, you guys should really explore doing Faction Paradox? Um, I think it was more just a case of the, uh, that Stuart Douglas, the, uh, the owner of Obverse, um, publisher um, really liked Faction Paradox and got on well with, with Lawrence Miles and um, asked for the license um, and because Lawrence wasn't doing anything else with it he said fine so it was arranged and, and there was an anthology called um, uh, what was it Romance in uh, 12 Romance Parts Romance in 12 Parts yeah. um, and I was asked to submit a story idea for that um, which I did and got in it um, it was pretty well received as a, as a book and then when Stuart decided he wanted to do a second collection he asked me if I'd edit it um, and I, at that point I hadn't read all of the Faction Paradox novels that Mad Norwegian Press had done so I was wondering if I was the right choice but he insisted well he'd read all of the, the charity anthologies that I'd been involved in and said you're exactly the person to do this um, so uh, that was what I did really just kind of went for it and I think I get the impression that Obverse's range of titles are what's it called an, a Wold Newton universe where you can take fictional characters and tell new stories with them because um, Selena you do stories about someone number five <laughs> okay we've both written novellas in the Senior 105 Thank range <laughs> um, which is yeah it's kind of like a spin-off of a spin-off mm. um, but is heavily inspired by Doctor Who because Senior 105 is a masked Mexican wrestler mm. who is in a, um, an alternative 1970s so he's a bit like the Doctor being with Unit but in Mexico uh, and he has a range of um, odd friends who help him out on these adventures um, and he has what, 105 um, different wrestling masks that represent the 105 elements that had been discovered at that point in time and so the masks convey powers on him usually by alien technology um, or some other method that's explainable uh, and so he uses the appropriate mask for the appropriate adventure um, so the adventure I wrote um, which was Green-Eyed and Grim was about a rogue Grim Reaper 
um, that Senor 105 had to stop because he was likely to rip a hole in the universe by trying to get in to retrieve a soul that had been lost. Um, and he teams up with um, Sheila, who's a sentient talking balloon, um, and also with another um, Reaper who is trying to help stop the rogue. Mm-hmm. So, but Jay has also written for that range as well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> my one was uh, The Five Faces of Fear. Um, I, in my fiction, I tend to always try and cram lots of pop culture references in. Half of them are just for my own amusement. Others are there to be found if people are going to look for them. So because um, as part of the research, we watched a lot of Santo movies and um, watched some of the 1980s British wrestling. So I, I had my Mexican equivalent of... Um, Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks, who were um, um, Papa Gigante and El Piro... No, what was it? No, pa- Papa Grande and uh, Peron Gigante, which apparently was about as close as you could get to Giant Haystacks. Uh, Sounds much better in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Senior 105 was created by um, Cody... Shell. Shell. Um, who originally created the character when he was writing another story for Obverse, so that's how that became part of the Obverse range. Okay. <laughs> and then he was just so popular that they went, well, actually, let's do more from this. So they decided they wanted to do a kind of a pulp line of e-books, um, and so the, the periodic adventures of Senor 105 were born. <laughs> so, so which franchise was Cody's original story part of? It was an Iris Wildtime story, ah. which is another one that's in the same way that Lawrence's Faction Paradox span out of Doctor Who and then had the, the, the serial numbers filed off. Um, Iris Wildtime is a Paul Mars character that he had been writing in little short stories of his own that were published by literary um, houses mm. and then got the opportunity to write for Doctor Who and thought, absolutely... Um, so introduced her into it as a foil for the Doctor where she mostly spends the time pointing at him and saying oh he's always taking credit for my adventures <laughs> as if she's the one that had all of these adventures and she, nice. she rides around in a TARDIS that's shaped like a um, well it's a, not a, a TARDIS a, it can't be a TARDIS because well, it's not Doctor Who wow <laughs> but in, in Doctor Who it's a TARDIS <laughs> but then obviously when it span out yeah, yeah. you have to drop all the Doctor Who related things but because of the, so the way a, that they could share it. It's a, 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 a machine, yeah, the 22 Red Buster Putney that uh, travels in time and space. <laughs> and is somewhat bigger on the inside than the outside. That's probably just to keep hold of all the gin. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, I got the impression that Obverse was initially set up to kind of produce um, uh, a place where Paul could perhaps do novels that are a bit more genre and he wouldn't have to think of, oh, you know, I I need to make this a bit more literary for a a highbrow publisher. There is, yeah, there's definitely an element of that. Um, Certainly uh, he and and Stuart got on really, really well and I think conversations between the two of them span out into Stuart deciding that he had some money burning a hole in his pocket that he wanted to have books that he wanted to read and if that meant him commissioning them, that was fair enough, which is why it's a sort of a fairly eclectic range of things because it's mostly down to whether Stuart wants to do it. It's not always down to whether he can make any money from it. But mostly the Iris Wildtime books that have been produced by Obverse are under licence um, from oh. Paul and they're short story collections by other writers. Okay. Um, so the latest one, um, Iris Wildtime of Mars, came out this week, which I have a story in. Nice. <laughs> and that one is... Um, the 
Jane Fonda version of um, Iris because Iris regenerates into different versions Um, and she gets stuck in unstable space around Mars so she keeps landing on different versions of Mars in each of the stories Um, and the one I wrote starts out a bit as a murder mystery and it's called Death on the Euphrates and is on the Canals of Mars version of Mars and again I suppose because it's a version of Iris Wild Time that looks like Jane Fonda you already have more to play with than, say, if you did a Barbarella story, where you'd have to fit in to a very small number of people who have read the original Barbarella comics. Yes, yeah, that's true. I mean, basically, we, we're writing Iris, because Iris as a ch- character, like the Doctor, doesn't change dramatically from regeneration to regeneration. It's just that in this one, she looks like a you know young, sexy Jane Fonda and carries a blaster and has a, uh, tends to a, like wearing catsuits. And... Would I be right in thinking, if, if not uh, the Mars anthology, but some of the other obverse anthologies come about through an open submissions uh, policy that people can like pitch stories and then if the editors like them, they get commissioned? Well, one of the Faction Paradox ones that's upcoming, that's edited by Kate Orman, was completely open submissions, but open to um, people who identified as female gender. And that was to encourage more female writers um, to write Faction Paradox. Mm. Some of the other anthologies are invite-only, but often the editors will have one slot which is open submission, so people can submit and there'll be one slot that's open um, for that story, to, uh, so whoever gets in by that way um, with the faction one that I did which was um, uh, Burning with Optimism's Flames which I shamelessly ripped off from XDC as a huge XDC fan um, and I thought well looking, looking at the titles of pretty much every other faction story they're pretty pretentious titles <laughs> so I needed something that was really going to up the ante on that nice. and it, it seemed to fit and <laughs> I thought faction and optimism seem not exactly obvious, so uh, I thought I'd go with that. So what, what I did was I um, decided I wanted certain people who I think are the, the best faction writers going, I had to invite them along. So there were certain people like uh, Jonathan Dennis, uh, Philip Persahallard, Simon Booger-Jones, who, it, it, to me, it wouldn't be a faction book if they weren't at least asked. And if they chose not to do it, then fair enough. But but they uh, luckily they said yes, and they all did something. Um, but I also wanted to go back to some of the writers I hadn't seen anything from in recent years who'd done things for the charity books I'd done in the past. Um, and so I managed to sneak a few of those back. So people like Sarah Hadley, Alan Taylor. Um, there's uh, Stephen Marley, who's a pro writer, who wrote a, two or three um, Doctor Who novels for Target. And then disappeared off the radar completely Um, you mentioned the Wolds Newton concept, he was very much an instigator of that in Doctor Who in that he had a lot of things where you'd have remakes of characters so you'd have um, multiple versions of Dracula or or Frankenstein and and just mash them all together and do something quite amusing and I thought well he's definitely got the right viewpoint for faction because I didn't want a lot of people that just go for the trappings of faction paradox with the, the cultists wearing um, bone masks and doing voodoo, ri- voodoo rit- rituals to um, get their um, time travel and causing paradoxes. I thought, well, that's, that's boring and the most obvious way of doing it. My idea of faction paradox is that they're always working behind the scenes and, and, and you can almost write a story where their absence is a hole in the story that you can kind of you can see them but you can't see them properly i guess it's like in in the the things that that's um stephen moffat's been doing in who where you have 
characters that you can only see out of the corner of your eye or if you blink then that kind of thing so I thought well that, that would be a fun way to go plus I also wanted to get an, an XTC connection into every story <laughs> just for my own amusement um, some people got it I think as soon as it was announced with the title of the book some, uh, there was a post on Gallifrey Base or something by someone saying ah someone's an XTC fan then uh, but I've not been sued by uh, by Andy Partridge yet, just as well. <laughs> um, but you also wanted it to open it up to writers who hadn't written for Faction before, yeah. so you did invite some writers we know through the British Fantasy Society, because we go to FantasyCon every year and know quite a lot of um, horror and fantasy writers um, through that. And um, we're also part of a writing group in Leicester called The Speculators, um, so some of those were also involved in submitting pitches um, to the book. I just basically, with, with the speculators, I just, um, knowing the writing styles of all the people in the group, I singled out a couple of them that were particularly on message for the type of stories that I wanted to do. One of them I'd actually seen a story that he'd already written that felt really faction anyway and said, well, can I have that? Um, and... Um, we, we modified it a little bit to make it a little bit more fitting to what we wanted and obviously I re-edited it as well, but, um, but it was pretty much ready to go. Well, I believe one of the uh, previous faction novels, Erasing Sherlock, wasn't in- uh, intended to be a faction novel, but because it was already working in the kind of ideas that would be appropriate, it didn't take much tweaking. Yeah, that's true. Um, Kelly Hale, um, and she was another one that I um, pretty much insisted had to do something for the book. Um, she was a little unsure at the time. I think she was taking a, a bit of a break from writing and was feeling a, a little bit um, unsure of herself, whether she should carry on writing or not. Um, but I just kept badgering away at her until she said, said, said yes. Um, but it's a, it's a very eclectic collection, I think very different um the one i mentioned that alan taylor earlier um best description that i can give for his faction story is that it's an episode of the office if it was directed by david cronenberg i'm sold <laughs> I, I don't think we've got any casual listeners at this point but to um to a casual listener it might sound like oh my god this is a spin-off a spin-off a spin-off what do i need to have read before but presumably with a lot of these anthologies they're tailored for someone who's picking up for the first time because you think, oh, that's got an interesting XTC uh, connected title and it's science fiction, I might like this. Um, hopefully, I mean, certainly all of the stories were standalone. Mm. Um, very little of it requires much knowledge of, of previous things. You get a vague idea of what's going on from each one, but they're all, as long as you know, they're, they're basically time travellers that are messing with the timelines and changing history, things, things like that. There's, there's one or two where some familiarity with Doctor Who would help but uh, mostly I think you can kind of pick most of the story out but there are layers so you can get into the more you know the deeper the layers you can go Um, but Sorry, I was just going to say, um, certainly the Senior 105 novellas and the Iris collections all stand alone. You don't need to know anything um, prior to reading them. And um, my Iris story I took to be critiqued to our writing group, and none of them were familiar with the um, franchise. So, and they all really enjoyed it and gave good feedback without knowing anything about the previous backstory. I was going to say, but conversely, with Iris, because it's a single character, people who are a fan of her, the more of these stories they read, the more it is filling gaps in her convoluted and unreliable uh, backstory. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, um, trying to piece Iris's backstory together is like trying to piece the Doctor's backstory together. You know, there's there's lots there and lots of places you can go with her. Well, as they say about the Doctor, the Doctor lies. Mm. So well, Iris. 
<laughs> um, but also the fact that I, I get the impression that with Paul Marr's work, who created Iris, that loads of Doctor Who writers, whatever official spin-off they've done, they've gone out of their way to fit their stories in a gap that already exists. While Paul doesn't seem to care if what he does contradicts something else, he'll be like, oh, the fans will work it out if they can. <laughs> yeah, no, I think Paul just writes what he wants to write and what he's enjoying at the time and what he thinks other people will enjoy. Um, and I think that's true of all of his work. Um, and obviously, if you are a Paul Mars fan, then all of his work is connected in some way. <laughs> um, so whether it's Iris Wildtime, whether it's the... Um, I've gone blank on the... Oh, Ellie and uh, Brenda. No. Brenda and Effie. The Brenda and Effie series. Um, you know, whether it's something else, whatever he's, he's going to do next. And obviously there's also all of his audio plays, which are, are done by different companies as well. Conversely, if someone has been following Faction Paradox for a number of years, uh, will there be any novels coming out in the not-too-distant future that will be big events, for want of a better phrase, in the Faction universe? Uh, well, obviously, we're not the publishers, but um, we do um, talk to Stuart quite a lot. Um, in terms of faction things, there's there's been quite a chain of, of novels that have been stacking up. There's, okay. um, there's um, obviously, the ones that have come out through Obverse. Uh, there's Against Nature by Lawrence Burton. Um, then there was The Breakspear Voyage by Simon Butcher-Jones and Jonathan Dennis um, and then the next ones are being worked on there's Head of State is on the way by Andrew Hickey um, there is um, another anthology by uh, which we mentioned earlier um, being edited by uh, Kate Orman um, and I'm trying to think what else there is no I think there's, there are more coming but I can't yeah I think there's some he's keeping a bit more under the... Yeah, yeah. Because I guess that there's always the worry, though, that if you're reading one of these spin-off things, but it's only ever stories told in that universe, but never actually really kind of goes anywhere in terms of having an ultimate narrative thrust, that could be disappointing. Um, well, I suppose you could say that about any short story collection, though, because <laughs> <laughs> that's the nature of short stories, where obviously the novels tell mm. a much bigger narrative. Yeah. Um, so I think it depends on what you like, really. Mm. And the other strand of books that Obverse do is based on The City of the Saved by Philip Persehallard. And again, that was another kind of faction spin-off, but in and of itself, it's a location where the dead continue to exist and there are more than one version of certain people. It's kind of, it. the idea of it is it's um, a post-human society. Mm. It's a, a city that is the size of a universe and <laughs> anyone who has ever um, human or partially human um, who has ever lived is reborn in the city of the saved Um, and so they can all interact so but you get clusters of people so there are certain areas that are kind of like very much roman and you get others where there's a whole one story in particular that's a lot of different versions of sherlock holmes so all and and you get um, not just real people but any created version so um, when, with my faction stories, I tend to sort of play with the idea of um, myths and legends. Um, Br'er Rabbit turns up in one of my um, city of the City of the Saved stories. Um, but I've also got a character who starts off in the present day as just an everyday burglar who's locked away, but then he kind of becomes something else as, as time goes on. I won't, I won't spoil it by uh, going into detail, but... It's a, it's a prison story with a difference, hmm. um, with a guest appearance by a certain um, uh, facsimile of a 
hirsute Northampton um, comic book writer, <laughs> shall <Nice>. we say. <laughs> And I guess because Obverse are publishing all of these ranges that come from a similar starting point, it means you almost get something a bit like a comic book universe. That, you know, if you buy the Teen Titans or the Justice League or Suicide Squad, you then get crossovers between these different franchises. And so there'll be an appearance by the faction in an Iris anthology, an appearance of the City of the Saved in a faction anthology. It has happened. I mean, they tend to be just little fleeting cameos rather than... Than a, than a big thing but usually it's just oh well that'd be quite funny if that happened now and they you know it's because they have this I suppose a fairly um, punk ethic of just I'll just do it <laughs> if it feels good do it and just add it in and, and see what you know as, as long as it gets past the editor and yeah I think it tends to be done in such a way where um, if the person reading gets the reference, they'll get something extra out of it. But if the person is new um, to the universe or is just reading that book, it won't impact on their enjoyment if they didn't get the reference. <laughs> so what's the ETA for the latest um, Obverse projects you guys have been working on? Uh, I don't think I have any at the moment. Oh. I'm, yeah, I'm... Huh. Uh, I'm, I'm in a, a, a resting and regrouping phase. Um, yeah, I'm sure something will pop up, but, but I, I don't want to sort of try and submit things to all of them because mm. the whole idea with Obverse is to try and keep bringing new people in. And if it's just the same faces jumping in every time, then it uh, becomes a little repetitive. And mine, as I mentioned earlier, came out this week, uh, which is Iris Wild Time of Mars anthology. Cool. Thanks a lot, guys. You can find more information about Faction Paradox and Iris Wildtime books by going to obversebooks.co.uk. That's O-B-V-E-R-S-E books.co.uk. And you can download ebooks featuring the Time Lord Mexican wrestler Senor 105 by going to manlybooks.co.uk. That's M-A-N-L-E-I-G-H books.co.uk. Jay Eels and Selena Locke are also writers and publishers of comic books, and you can find more information about these by going to factorfictionpress.co.uk. That's fact or fictionpress.co.uk. My interview with Jay and Selena was recorded at the Lakes International Comic Festival, which has quickly become the finest comic book event in the UK, taking place each year in and around Kendall in the Lake District, and tickets for this year's event have just gone on sale for talks with the likes of Canadian creators, Catherine and Stuart Immonen and Seth, Guardian cartoonists, Steve Bell and Stephen Appleby, and finest comic book creators from around the world. For more information about the Lakes International Comic Festival, please go to comicartfestival.com. The Booklist podcast was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and you can find previous episodes of Booklist by going to my blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, and clicking on the link at the top marked Booklist. A previous episode on Doctor Who novels include interviews with Terence Dix, Mark Platt, Paul Cornell, Tommy Donbevund and Jenny Colgan, as well as a variety of other podcasts about books, novelists and publishing, including interviews with Sally Gardner, Charles Stross, Max Brooks, Iris Wildtime creator Paul Cornell, Pulitzer Prize winning author Michael Chabon, Philip Reeve and Jodie Pico. There'll be another episode of Booklist later in the year, 
where I'll be talking to Children's Laureate Chris Riddell and Comics Laureate Dave Gibbons. In the meantime, thanks for listening. This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.